we're back. Welcome to Abstractable. This is the podcast for the entrepreneurial spirit of the curious, the hungry, and those who want to learn with us. We distill down the ideas from the world's best thinkers in business, startups, psychology, and today is politics. And today we're bringing you A Promised Land by Barack Obama. Yeah, so in the episode, we discuss what it's like to go from ordinary citizen one day to becoming the president of the United States the next. Also, what it's like to make decisions on some of the most complex problems in the world, like the GFC, some of the environmental disasters that happened in Obama's first term, and the multiple wars that the US was fighting at the time. We also talk about Obama's habits and rituals and what keeps him at his best. Well, why are we looking at this book? Well, it's fascinating insight into what doing the hardest job in the world is like and how Obama managed to pull it off. So don't forget you can find full video from our episodes on YouTube and check out our website at abstractable.co. We hope you enjoy the episode. And one last note, if you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you let someone else know about the show. Cheers. So, mate, um, we're in our third, third set for this year. Third set of what? Well, or at least um, third, our third recording set, and you know, well, at least part a part of the recording set has changed, and in this case, it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> You're always on the move. I'm always in the same room and you're gallivanting around. Where are you now? Yeah, but, but that means that the uh, set has changed technically, you know. The, yeah. The, a portion oh, of the definitely. set changes, the whole set changes. Yeah, it's just you're living this exciting life. So tell me, where are you now? <laughs> I, I w- well, I don't know how exciting you'd call uh, living in. What, what do you call the, What do you refer to these huts as, Lockie? They're called dongers. Dongers. And where does that name come from? I think it's a FIFO term. It's like a mining term for the little hut that you live in when you're away from home in Gladstone or something, uh, you know, working in the mines. But why yeah. are you in a donger? I'm in a donger because we have just arrived back in Australia. Right. So huge. you know what? what's so huge about that is we don't have – anywhere near the amount of lag that we've had all year. So we, now we've got no excuses for recording. No, exactly. It's, <laughs> uh, it's got to be absolutely all our fault if there are any <laughs> uncomfortable pauses or anything like that. So yep. how many COVID tests have you had? That's what I want to know because it feels like every time you move you have to get a COVID test, right? Yes, basically. Um, yeah. So we've only had only had two since being here. One on arrival, and we've we've passed the, uh, you know, I've, I've put the seventh scratch on the wall here. So we're at day seven. So we're actually we're at day eight. So I've already lost track of track of time. And so um, two here. We had a couple before we two or three before we left, um, but we also had to pass through. Uh, from Switzerland to Germany, so we had to have one before that as well. Although it wasn't clear whether we really did have to have one in the end. So that I've is, had a few. Yeah, that is a lot. Um, sorry, <laughs> the old uh, dog barking in the background there. Uh, you haven't got any burglars coming into their house, mate. 
No, it was just Christy actually coming home from the neighbor's house. So okay. It's on high alert, bang. Um, so I, yeah, that is crazy. And so you're just used to it now. It doesn't hurt or anything because people have different experiences with these tests, you know. Like, it depends sort of like how your face is, I reckon, and who's doing it. But uh, any it difference in Australia than, uh, than overseas? I'll tell you, guess where the most thorough test is being done? Germany. Not in Europe. <laughs> yeah, okay, right. Okay, I thought it might be the Germans, but it's back here, is it? Yeah, definitely back here, mate. We've, okay. um, so um, here is like full... Get the get this like bristly thing, shove it into the back of your throat, both sides of the back of the throat, and then both nostrils up the nose, um, to to a place that feels like it's going into the back of the brain. Um, whereas over in uh, over in Europe, I reckon I had I reckon I had one of the tests, and I think they were using almost like a cotton bud, so it was quite. It was quite soft. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, right. And, so but like a nice. thin, like a really thin, thin cotton okay, bud right. as opposed yeah, to gotcha. this bristly, bristly like, um, you know what you clean glasses with, you know, like yeah. when you're washing yeah, the yeah, dishes. Yeah. So okay. here, here we've got one of those, like bristles getting up your, up, up your schnoz. And then uh, uh, over there we had, it was like this like mini cotton bud. And I think, I, I don't even know if they... It's almost like they didn't even scrape scrape my bloody throat and, and nose. You know, you almost didn't even feel it. So I've had I've had the whole whole spectrum, I think, mate. So it's certainly not hotel quarantine for you. It's a mining camp quarantine. Yeah, which I it's actually probably think, nicer. I think it is. Um, I think because we we had to do three days in a hotel before we left um, as part of like our quarantine, and. So that was in a hotel and, you know, you're not allowed to leave your room um, for those three days. And, you know, I think, well, I think the aircon was, wasn't really working in our room, which probably made it more stuffy, but it just felt it felt, felt a bit stuffy in the room. So I can imagine after two weeks people are really wanting a bit of fresh air. Oh, yeah. Um, whereas here we've got the, the luxury of having a bit of fresh air, which is quite nice. Well, enjoy it. What better thing to do than record a podcast while you're there? I know, I know. So you're gonna to have to, you're gonna to have to put up with um, a heavy dose of rain. So I'm up in Darwin. If there's a, you know, we've had a couple of big downpours today. So in case there's a bit of noise, that's where it's coming from. <laughs> Fair enough. So what are we talking about today? We are talking about Barack Obama, the yeah. man. <laughs> so his biography. Autobiography, I guess. Uh, a Promised Land. We listened to on Audible all 26 hours of it so that you don't have to. Um, no, it is good. Check it out, but it's a longie. Um, and uh, yeah, my brother recommended this and uh, I got stuck in and then recommended it to you. Uh, it's a very interesting insight into his, uh, the first four years of his presidency and a little bit of preamble about his life before that. So, mate, launching into this, you know, you, you follow the American politics a little bit, don't you? Or certainly I, more than what I probably do. I do. I do. I got right into it um, probably over the last four years with uh, everything that's happened over there. <laughs> I think and, I think the whole world's been forced to. Yeah. That's all, then, that's, that's all that's been displayed everywhere. Yeah. So uh, you could say I'm a, well, I've got some, I'm probably like a, 
very low-level knowledge, but yeah. So we'll, we'll call you by. today's expert then. All right, cool. Today's expert <laughs> on the US politics arena. The pundit, yeah. Yeah. And so, mate, what was your what was your take on um, Obama? Did you did you have much to, or know much about his presidency before the book? Before, mm. yeah. Um, oh, look, not. I wouldn't say I knew the guy or felt like I did, <laughs> but well, that's I, something about him. That is something about him. You kind of you feel like he's your mate. In, in some well, ways. After, yeah. Afterwards, you, he's very relatable after you kind of listen to this. Um, but, you know, I was pretty interested when he first got elected and got kind of, it seemed like this kind of wave for this guy who was so, such a brilliant speaker and carried so much hope. Um, and at the time, I actually wrote a small letter to the age about it when I was at uni. Fun fact. Really? And uh, what did the letter entail? Mate? Tell us about the letter. It was only about two or three lines. Do we get to do a do we get to do a uh, episode on that letter? Uh, you wouldn't be able to. I'll tell you what it is right now. It, I think I said something like, <laughs> "Like he was a great hope, but let's wait and see." Sort of thing was the theme, Ooh. you know, because he was promising big. Was kind of my feeling. Um, but I was excited that he'd been elected, and I was I was a fan. And this is uh, good. This is one of the themes for our talk today. Yeah, and I also read a book about the race that he did. Um, the 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 race because you know in America mm-hmm. you have to win the your the nomination by your party before you go into the general election against the other party. Well, I read a book um, which I'll look up so I can get the name of it. But effectively it was sort of like it was detailing Clinton's versus Obama and that kind of battle for the primary and that was super interesting as well um, given it was kind of the establishment versus this up-and-comer and and that was was pretty cool um, to see what he did. Um, And then during his presidency I was like kind of and this is something I want to talk about in this episode, is that I felt as though while he was trying, like how much can the president actually do? And and that was kind of my feeling by the end of it is that it doesn't really matter how brilliant you are, there's, there's only so much you can actually get done. Um, yeah. Given the it's mechanisms a, it's a of the office. Yeah, it's and it's it's kind of one thing that you know for someone that's you know, as ignorant as I am about it all, you know this whole concept of the filibuster and you know, everything else that surrounds that just seems like a beyond broken system to me. You so, know? what is the filibuster? Just for people who don't know. Again, the uh, the ignorant version is that. If you hear for look, let's just put this up front. If you hear for the facts about the politics, <laughs> rather than opinions, go somewhere else. All right, just isn't, switch isn't off politics now. Politics, all opinions. Yeah, if you want some like technical answers about uh, the exact number of votes it requires, which I think sixty six, but 
that means you don't you can get through without the filibuster or whatever in the Senate. You probably need to head somewhere else because we're just going to fly through this with a few rough. You might call us bush political analysts if you like. <laughs> we know enough to get by, and that's about it. So, but we're going to talk about Obama and his uh, and his fantastic book. But uh, I think I think you call yeah. it know enough to get in trouble. And yeah, that's there's it. no better way to get in trouble than talk about politics. So yeah. the filler, the concept of the filibuster is basically that um, in the states. Even with the majority in the Senate and the House, is that right, mate? That, it's the Senate. Uh, the, I the Senate that you need to, which is, um, I, I don't know how many seats in total. Seventy something is that? Is that a fair? Eighty something. I don't know maybe? the total seats, but I think so. Let's say you get fifty-one percent of the vote or something. Yeah, fifty-one percent of the vote. That's not doesn't enough. cut it. No. Yeah, you need because. to get more than two thirds of the more than two-thirds of the vote because of some – he basically draws it back to some <laughs> – he refers to him as like a myopic um, theorist or something like that, some some person, some guy that came up with uh, the concept that uh, basically you could debate things until the cows come home and as long as someone or someone on the opposition side had something to say on a matter – you could continue to say things on a matter and the matter couldn't be resolved unless there was a supermajority gain, gained in the Senate uh, and that supermajority requires like 66 or 70% or something like that of, yeah. the, of the votes in order to get through, which basically yeah. never yeah. happens. Yeah, so you can get up in the Senate and just basically play for time until it gets to, And so you can get up and read... All of Dan Brown's Da Vin- Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, uh, and people like read Green Eggs and Ham and stuff and do all this stupid stuff. And <laughs> as long as you just keep talking, they can just stall it. Um, and yeah, basically, there's an option to get rid of it if you, if you want. Someone could could rule a motion like Obama, uh, Biden now could say, no, "We're getting rid of the filibuster," but that. They know that if when they get voted out, they want to use it. So no one's game to actually get rid of it because both sides like to use it when they're in opposition. So it's just one of those things. It's just it's like you know the using twisting the laws of the Senate to kind of do some weird stuff. But yeah, it's like the ultimate Mexican standoff, or <laughs> it's like the ultimate. Um, you know, but but it all shows that they're all bloody politicians too, in my, in my oh, opinion. Absolutely. You know, it's like, well, yeah, it's tough. It's a tough thing. And the and the problem is, mate, is for something like that that's been in the system now for so long, it's kind of baked into culture in some yeah. ways. And so that's that's the bit that takes a long time to untangle. Well, this is what's so interesting about Obama and um, I guess politics is that, you know, what does it say about his presidency that straight afterwards Trump was elected? How does that yeah. affect his legacy? I don't know the answer, but that seems to be like quite an interesting kind of thing is that after, straight after his um, eight years that they went for the most <laughs> out there candidate ever, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's a... Uh, it's complicated. 
Tell us about Obama, mate. Barack Hussein Obama II is his actual name and he kind of comments in the book that it's a miracle. Anything's possible in America if you can be called Hussein and Obama, which sounds similar like Osama, and become president. So he was born August 4th in 1961 in Honolulu, Hawaii, despite what Donald Trump might say. Uh, he was born in America. So his mum was sort of from English descent um, and she was born in uh, Wichita, Kansas, and his father was a Kenyan man and who came over to uh, America and they met in a, ru- a Russian language class at the University of Hawaii. Um, and then, so his father was a foreign exchange student or a foreign student on a scholarship, I should say. And his father actually went on to go to Harvard, which Obama would do as well. So they got in a whirlwind romance. They got married in 1961, six months before Obama was born, and they filed for divorce in 1964. Hmm. So it was a quick um, a quick marriage that didn't last. Um, and effectively he didn't really know his dad that well, you know. He's really grew up with his mum who with another partner they moved to Indonesia when he was about six years old and he lived in Indonesia from the age of six to ten and, you know, having sort of that background of living overseas uh, kind of really shaped his life quite a lot I think, had a big impact on him. Have you seen that documentary Barry on Netflix? No. I think it's called Barry. It's it's about... Um, Brack, and I think it's I think it's everything. It's been a while since I've seen it. Everything in the lead up to him seeing meeting Michelle, uh, I think, or he's just he just gets puts eyes on on Michelle. I think is the uh, I think is the kind of ending thing, and you're like ah, oh, you know, one of those cliffhanger moments, and um, wait for the next season. It's a movie. Um, so anyway, they talk about the the life in Indonesia, and or portrays the, the life in Indonesia, and you know he's. It seems that he is just always studying and always working, and and it, and it seemed like this was a really kind of forming period of his his life there. Yeah, really interesting. I'd love to look at that. I'll, I'll check it out. Um. But he certainly jumped around. So, like in 1971, he returned to Honolulu and lived with his maternal grandparents, uh, who he was very close with, and they were his mother's parents. Uh, and so he lived with them for a while. Then he's then he lived with his mum again, and then sh- she moved for a job, and he stayed in. By this stage, he was a late teenager or something, and he stayed in Honolulu with his grandparents. And so, yeah, it was kind of this upbringing where. He didn't really know his dad and his mum had uh, a few relationships and he also lived with his grandparents. So, you know, not a super stable home life. Um, So in 1981, after he'd finished finished high school and some other studies, he transferred from, uh, I I believe he was in, uh, still in, Hawaii at the time, but he transferred to Columbia University and he graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in 1983 and he did very well. He was a good student. so. And he talks in the book around this time about sort of 
this is a formative period for him about creating his political ideology and thinking about everything um, and the like. Um, so in terms of his personal life, um, around 1983 he went on and spent time as a community organiser and in 1989, after he'd been working for a while um, and he enrolled in Harvard in 1988, he met Michelle Robinson in 1989 and they were sort of, he was doing a summer associate because he was studying to be a lawyer at this time at a Chicago law, law firm and they fell in love and they were married in 91 and had their daughters, uh, Malia and Sasha, in 1998 and 2001. And so, yeah, but basically he went to Harvard and this is where his life kind of took a, a real turn because he was selected editor of the Harvard Law Review at the end of his first year and president of the journal in his second year. And this is the first time there'd ever been a black president of the Harvard Law Review. So he's starting to kind of, this could be his first political uh, position, I, I would say. Because I feel like there's uh, an air around that Harvard Law Review um, and people going on to is it yeah, be in politics or in high positions in politics? Is that the... Yeah, it's a very prestigious thing, highly sought after, and, yeah, you're kind of ordained to go and do something. It, was, it gained so much attention that someone gave him a book deal on the back of it. <laughs> so that's when he wrote... Um, Dreams from My Father, which was his, I think his first book. Well, it was his first book. Um, and isn't that interesting that he'd made such an impact at that point someone wanted him to write a book? It's, yeah. And I guess, I guess, um, you know, going back then, I, I imagine the prestige was maybe even higher than what it maybe is today because it seems that, I don't know, uh, it feels like some of the the prestige used to be the gateway in, in order to do anything um, of, of that high acclaim in some ways. And now I think that the, that distinction seems to be of reducing and maybe just because of the advent of technology and, uh, and that. But... Uh, yeah, fascinating, mate. And he's quite young too to like yeah. be asked to write a book by a publisher and, you know, be the president of the Harvard Law Review. It's He's yeah, a clever dude, clearly. Oh, and, you know, it clearly shows he's able to kind of be comfortable in, in many worlds. You know, he's got this kind of his white mother and his black father and he's kind of while he's stuck between two worlds of identity, and his identity, which he talks about, it also meant that he could kind of un, he could uniquely roll between different worlds and 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 fit in, you know. And that's one of his many gifts, I think. Besides yeah. being an incredibly intelligent, charismatic person. And I think I think that probably becomes from, you know, a big part of that probably comes from that as you, as you mentioned that slightly unstable upbringing that he is actually able to is fortunate enough to be able to give it be given you know a really good education but at the same time he was living in some you know some poorer circumstances yeah um and then obviously once he 
continued on beyond like the prestigious world of Harvard, he he moved into be, becoming an organizer and a political organizer, and so he's on the you know he's on the front line talking with workers and you know work you know very much working class and and people you know unfortunately struggling to you know pay pay for their livelihoods even though they're working full time or multiple jobs type of thing um, as is the, I think a, a very common symptom in in the states. Um, so, so being on that front line, I think, has has really helped him with that relatability across the across the spectrum. So he was elected to the Illinois Senate in 1996, and this is kind of his first big foray into real politics. And this was in effectively the Chicago kind of area, um, but effectively. He kind of stuck it out there for a while and this was a really tricky time for him. He had a young family. It was way harder on Michelle than it was him because uh, she was looking after the kids while he was out, um, you know, away um, in Springfield doing these, um, being a senator, trying to balance his family life, not really being there to help. Um, and this was before they were famous, you know. He's just like a random senator. He got massive student loans. They've got no money. You know, they're living in tough, not tough conditions, but it certainly wasn't the glamorous lifestyle. And he was sort of like at this point, well, what do I do? Do I keep going with politics or do I go get, become a lawyer and earn some money? Um and he kind of had this kind of choice and he kind of convinced Michelle to give him another shot, one more shot at politics. And he, in 2004, was elected to the US Senate. He wrote another book and he did his speech at the um, 2004 Democratic Convention, which was very famous speech. And if you get a chance, just Google it and watch it. I think it goes for about 16 minutes. And when I was... Um, Rereading this, I watched it again, and it is—it's an amazing speech. And if you can think of the time as well, it just absolutely. Everyone's like, "Who the hell is this?" You know. And four years later, he was president. It's unbelievable. It was like that ultimate, you know, movie scene—the hero's journey—and he's at that final breaking point, and then he asks for the one, you know, one more ticket, one more chance, and then. With that, he's uh, he was able to get through, mate. And Michelle sort of like, how the hell did you actually pull this off? Uh, <laughs> but you know, she is it, you know, such an important figure in his life, um, and an amazing person in her own right. Um, and she, she really didn't love the politics at all. You know, she's kind of a somewhat unwilling participant in it she hates politics so but she's kind of made the most of it and, and turned herself into a you know used it as a force for good i think yeah i haven't read the uh her book becoming but i've heard good things about it so yeah we should do that mm, i'd love to so there was a i mean i've skipped over a lot of stuff and it jumps around a little in my bio but you know, you kind of get the idea of, of well, where I'm he's glad, I'm glad he was doing his autobiography, mate, and you weren't writing the biography. 
Thanks. Um, but I oh, wanted to right. read this quote because I think it kind of leads into what the book really talks about, which is, you know, him becoming president and being president for the first four years. He's actually going to write another one for the next, for his second term, uh, which I assume he's working on now. But he says, you don't choose the time. The time chooses you. Either you seize what may turn out to be the only chance you have or you decide you're willing to live with the knowledge that the chance has passed you by. And I think this theme runs throughout the book is that there was just a, his life seemed to get swept up in this movement that he kind of created and rode the back of in some sort of like intermingled way where, you know, he was kind of fueling it, but it was fueling him and, and he and all of a sudden he's gone from like a uh, a senator in the Illinois Senate, which is really a dodgy place, away from his family, broke, huge student debts, troubled marriage, to riding Air Force One. <laughs> Twelve years later, like, um, and making history. Yeah, it's um, it's an incredible transformation, right? And just <clears throat> there's some there's something they talk about in, and I think I feel like this this applies in a lot of different places, and like in the markets, for example, um, people that particularly uh, you know go for long just long term investments holds uh, in the crypto community they call it hodls. Um, they, there's, there's only a few like major points in, in the market where things really, um, jump up quite a lot. And unless you're in the market at those particular points in time, then you kind of miss the boat. And I feel like, um, this is, this is pretty similar, although maybe the, the difference here is you probably have a little bit more insight on the opportunities. You probably have a little bit more tactical feel about when those moments are coming because I'm almost going to say no one, but very few people in the world really know when that's happening in the market. Um, so I think I think having a little bit of a guise on your own life and, and trying to have a little bit of awareness about what is actually happening around you, particularly as these big like sweeping waves come up around you, um, can change your life. And that's seen in that four-year timeline between – and really, mate, it's it's less than four-year timeline. It's, it's kind of like a, a one-year timeline because it was almost like one year that he was non-existent political candidate, then all of a sudden he was a political candidate and he was rallying huge, huge crowds. Um, and that was probably across the space of 12 months. And you know, even after that, he's kind of shifted his entire life, even if he didn't probably become president, you know? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, you you got to read the moment. So maybe just on the moment, mate, um, for me, I, I had to I had to kind of cast myself back because you know this is two thousand and seven two thousand and eight. You know, by the time he's he's become president, and so at, like that's that's quite a long time ago. 
And, you know, at that time, the iPhone, for example, like we're at bloody iPhone, I don't even know what number now, iPhone 12 or 11. And, you know, the iPhone had only just come out at this point in time. You know, the GFC, global financial crisis was in full, full swing. The Arab Spring was becoming, you know, very much the the, the big ISIS movement that, that we recognize. I can't remember when that big, uh, that huge, huge thing about, uh, you know, the, the ISIS in Syria and all that took place, but I think it was uh, somewhere around then as well or just after. I think it was after, yeah, but, you know, they're all kind of, it's certainly, that was the start of some um, instability in the region. Yeah. And I'd say that... Um, like climate change was just a completely different word uh, mm. than, or you know, phrase than what what it is today. Uh, it was global across, warming was, back then. Yeah, global warming, and then it's all the classic arguments about oh, is it really rising or it's not rising? And anyway, I think we moved on from that. And then, and then something that really stuck out for me, mate, was he, he points out that there was like Confederate flags still on the state building in South Carolina. Um, which seems just quite strange. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. So a very interesting, you know, point in time and, and quite it actually feels like quite a long time ago. Yeah. Well it is. Mm. Um but even more so to your point about the fast changing world we live in. So but yeah, even in that first four years to have to deal with the GFC as well as say all these other um things that are happening in the world. It's pretty full on. Yeah. yeah. So I was kind of struck by the point of like, well, what can we actually take from this book? Because he is a politician and he is writing effectively his own history here. Um, and I think that's a big point of political memoirs is to kind of get the quickly get out your... Um, your version of events, although it took a while to, to write this book. Um, so what do you think? What did you take from this book and what were you a bit wary of? Yeah, this is the same thing struck me throughout. Mate. Um, and, and I was, I'm trying to, like I was trying to not be biased on it and, and seeing, you know, him as a politician and just trying to see it from like a, a biographical autobiographical standpoint for him. But uh, they've really felt like points in time where he was like jimmying that lever in to like, you know, make that mark in time about, hey, this is, you know, this is that that particular thing that we did. And, hey, you know, um, if you're going to remember me, this is how you need to remember me by type thing. Um, certainly, certainly felt like that and, you know, Guess you guess that's what you do in a in autobiography too. Um, that's the yeah. I guess that's why you go out and write one in the first place. So there was moments that felt like that. Understandably, there was moments that felt like they were trying. He was trying to defend some of the decisions that they made throughout their time. Um, yeah, they. It feels like there was like a lot of quite disastrous events throughout throughout those those two terms. It was quite a quite a rough period but it's it's hard to gauge because i've probably prior to that i was probably too young to be at, at all engaged with politics you know even the the little that i am probably engaged compared to some today 
Yeah, so you were a bit wary of, um, you know, the way he was trying to shape certain things. Yeah. So, so what was interesting about the book for you then? Oh, I just I just love the um, – it felt real and it did feel like him and, you know, yeah. it probably helps that he was reading the book. So really recommend the audio, the audio book for this one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He has a very cool, you know, cool and calm nature about him, and and I think that's one of the appeals. Is he's such a good speech maker? Uh, he has a very good voice. He's able to talk uh, quite well through things. He's very. He's got that very like calming of the storm. You know, kind of like he walks into a room of chaos and it feels like things just calm down a little bit um, or get a little bit slower. You know. Yeah, he's he's got presence. You know. It's like Arnold, you know. They've got, he's got a presence about him that just you feel it when he's talking, when he's reading the book and when you see him speak. It's just something about him that is you're drawn to him. Yeah. We might have to do an analysis on that. We've done, we've done like a suite of creativity, you know, what do you call them, um, breakdowns. There's a better word for it though. Anyway, dive into creativity and what makes creativity. I think we're going to have to do a dive into like presence mm. and, and these people Charisma. that create presence yeah, because it's it really is. And and whilst I would say that Arnie and Obama are like on the opposite ends of the scale in terms of what that type of presence actually is when they walk into the room, it seems like Arnie walks in the room is just it is fucking chaos. Whereas um, Obama walks in the room, everything just kind of slows down, you know, a couple of degrees, and mm. you know, each has its own. Well, you look at Arnie, and he's 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 become effectively the president of one of the biggest countries in the world, uh, being this you know the state of California mm. uh, in it in its in its own right. So that's a that's an interesting take, probably a key aspect of any anyone. Uh, wanting to go into any sort of position like that is that charisma and and presence. Yeah, it struck me that, like, I agree, very relatable. It was sort of like what it's like to be a normal person who's very ambitious who then gets becomes the president of the United States and what that's actually like. I felt like you could really connect to that for him and he was quite honest, I believe about some of the feelings that he had during that and that was very interesting to be in such a high pressure situation and how you handle that and um, I also found fascinating the fact that sort of the structure of the actual role and what it entailed so like what he spent his time doing what sort of staff he had around him how he what he he did versus others um and kind of what it, what the presidency means to people and the way that they treated him with such reverence was quite interesting and quite an interesting idea that that basically there's so much ritual around the president that it gives you a certain amount of power just through the ritual of it, if that makes sense. Like yeah. he was Barack until 2009 when he got sworn in or whatever it was, and then he was Mr. President um, and everything was different. Yeah, and, and particularly, well, yeah, 
you, you kind of already know the end of the story before you start it. But, you know, if you hadn't have known that and you were reading the story without having known his life already, you would read that and be like, he's just a normal guy and he's just like just a small-time political player. And then all, all of a sudden he's just thrust into this politics and you kind of juxtapose that against someone like Hillary Clinton who's, you know, she was trying to become president at that point in time as well when he was running. Um, and you see, you know, I see her as more of a, you know, that career politician type type person as opposed to it's, it's it felt like he came from like that real grassroots on the coalface and then all of a sudden he was kind of thrust into the president. So maybe, you know, he wasn't ready for it, but who is ready for president if they haven't been president? It, it sounds like yeah. a very, you can't practice to be the president, I don't think. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, I'd be interested to, I don't know enough about Hillary's early days to really know what she did before she was first lady, but um, certainly since Bill was the president, they've been kind of the entrenched political family along with the Bushes um, for, for quite a while. So I think... So that, that was interesting, the kind of spiritual nature of the presidency and the power that that entails as well as like how you turn a normal person into someone who can run the biggest country in, or the biggest economy in history, the biggest country, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that was super interesting. And then how he kind of handled the pressure and, and made decisions I thought was pretty fascinating too. Yeah, which we will, um, which we will definitely get into. So the... Um, I think that I think that's quite nice, mate. What you mentioned about that kind of rise up to power and and the momentum that comes with it, because he he mentions throughout the book that because of that, it's almost that speed of that momentum that that came around him. Initially, it felt like he was running, and then after some time during the the race it felt like he was just a vessel for this movement and that there were, the movement was, you know, far bigger than he was, which is, you know, uh, you know maybe, maybe the case. But it's quite, it's quite interesting that both sides of the political spectrum were actually able to use this, um, you know, so the, the Republican side was weaponizing that and using that against, and the uh, the Democratic side was using it uh, for to try and uh, bring on the supporters and the aspirations. And so he basically started to embody something that was just far greater uh, than who he was as this this normal person. And and so it's like you've got this. It's almost like you got this yeah this spirit animal uh, <laughs> riding above riding above the person. Uh, so some of the really interesting uh, elements where throughout the campaign um, and that make his situation kind of unique was he he just started the race right and normally this doesn't ha- this only happens for like a president or a vice president um, if they are running this is the only time this typically had happened uh, he was like assigned a secret service like a dedicated secret service and and you know I, I mentioned before about the you know the, the confederate flag on the on the state building in South Carolina um, 
it just feels strange that that's in the 2000s, you know what I mean? Um, and the, the reason was it's just huge security uh, threats against him. Um, and he actually mentions that they kind of, they obviously came up to him and and said, hey, there's there is a lot of chatter uh, on the lines about with your name ringing quite quite loud. So we need to um, we need to look after you. Terrifying. Um, yeah, and I think the other thing was like some people in the black community would come up to him and Michelle and just say, sort of almost preempt his assassination in a way and say, oh, you know, I'm sorry. You know, almost seeing it in the future, um, which is terrifying, you know. It would take some grit to get through that. Yeah, you know, get for, up on stage. Every, it was just, well, yeah, how do you run up on the stage, you know, when that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, you have to you have to trust in the uh, in the crew that's looking after you. I guess that's all you can do. Once you're in, decide how no badly you want it. Either. Yeah, that's it. Nah. And so there was many many of these like ideological challenges that presented themselves. I think throughout the throughout the course of the first, you know, it's certainly the first term, um, and and we've probably seen that really, you know, rise up particularly even over the last 12 months and, you know, in the lead up to the last 12 months, it's just been a continual kind of build of those uh, really deep-rooted ideological um, um, movements and things. So one of, the, one of the really interesting ones for me, mate, was just getting some insights on the, you know, the Israeli-Palestine uh, situation that, that he had to deal with and had to go through. Um and the the challenge that they faced is that you know the U.S. backing the Israeli side, and then uh, all of a sudden they were facing challenges from a uh, because they were becoming you know they were they were far stronger than the, the Palestinian side is the, the the read on it, and basically they were encroaching on the the Palestinian uh, settlements. Now that kind of does away with all the militia attacks and everything else that was happening and uh, and the continual violence and threat of violence that was uh, in the area. But there was just this um, you know, really like deep-rooted, uh, long-existing political divide that he had to be incredibly involved in and then was basically like crucified for in terms of the decision making that he had to make around it um which ended up being that he had to uh, they had to like basically tell israel to hold back on what they were doing and not support what they were doing and then all of a sudden you know it's just everything blew up uh not literally but um yeah i'm sure things did politically yeah. yeah politically politically and huge huge challenge but I, I found it interesting that the level of interventionism that is kind of tied into the or keyed into the to the global environment, right? Um, and there's a lot of people that are totally against that interventionism, um, and then obviously people that are very much for it. Yeah. Well, 
I guess it comes back to again. It's very. We live in a complex world. Um, you know, say going into Iraq caused all sorts of consequences that no one predicted at the time. Um, the Middle East is is so complex. I wouldn't even begin to pretend to understand it. Um, so I guess it kind of depends. Like he talks about Libya and how they went in there and did a quick sort of fix that saved a lot of lives. Um, and that's probably interventionalism going right. But, you know, how much moral responsibility did someone like the US actually have in the world to do good and how much bad are they doing that you don't hear about? How much bad are they doing? Because that's the nature of geopolitics is that it's it's a dog-eat-dog dog world and you've got to back some militias and you've got to do this and that that people don't want to know about. I don't know. Um, so I don't really have a clean answer to it. I guess you've got to be my only thought really is that beware of unknown consequences and also I suppose try and really look at what you're getting yourself into before you kind of you do. Um, you can't fix everything. Yeah, um, I. Yeah, it's and it's beyond. It's beyond because this is this is like the ultimate complexity that you can get to basically in a problem because it's like it's the the the, the largest and the greatest you know differences in culture and and you know number of moving parts and and waves of on-flow effects that can occur as a result of any decision that's made at this kind of geopolitical level. But as you say, mate, it's 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 very much dog-eat-dog dog world. And so, you know, you've got proponents on the side that there should be no interventionalism. But, like, what happens to, you know, there's a number of countries and places that would just be totally gobbled up by other powers straight away. Um, you know, and millions of lives lost, no doubt, or many, but many I, lives lost. I think likely the way that these people think about it, though, is that, okay, if that country gets gobbled up, what does that mean for my country? Um, as opposed to, you know, there's so, there's a huge amount of pragmatism as opposed to, like, doing it for altruistic reasons. Um, and... I think that like there's the nature of international relations is it's really brutal. Mm. It doesn't operate on the same way as, you know, this Nassim quote where I think he said, uh, you know, I'm a communist with my family but a libertarian at, at a country level or something because I'm probably misquoting him there, maybe libertarian's a little bit too far, but the idea that, you know, no, I think you I know. think I think it's even I think it's yeah I think you've hit it on the head, mate. I even think it's maybe even further to I don't even know what further to the right is than than that, but you know it's like an aggressor basically with your country at the country level. Because I think, and it comes back to like I believe I think it's quite an insightful quote, even though I probably maybe don't agree with where he takes it to on the larger scale. But is that in your family you know everyone and there's personal accountability. In a small town, you'll leave your bike unlocked. 
around because everyone kind of knows each other. So there's this kind of personal accountability piece in your community. And then when you move to Amsterdam, well, you don't leave your bike unlocked, do you? You know, and you no, don't say you do. hi to everyone. There's the so street. many bloody bikes, you just leave it unlocked. No one cares. Sorry. You pick up another yeah. one. <laughs> you pick up another. They're like, uh, they're interchangeable. Um, and then, so as you go further and further out, you know, you see this on the internet, the anonymous things that happen under the power of anonymity are ridiculous. If you don't know and you're not going to see what happens, it's less, you're more likely to do stuff that's, um, you know, I suppose not really moral, I guess, in, in this truest sense. And then so there needs to be more things in place to kind of stop that. And then you take that up and up and up a level and you end up at international relations where there's just, it's almost like there's no rules, like, they're, everyone's spying on each other, they're hacking each other, they're attacking one another, they're not, they're, you know, it's absolutely crazy. And so it's very hard to, I think that that's kind of just part of the game as much as you don't want it to be. If one side's doing it, um, that doesn't mean there's no rules as such. I just mean that it's different it's a much more brutal than um, than something that you would have in your own community. Yeah, well. Now, just to you, clarify, uh, that doesn't mean people should go around killing other people or yeah, taking over other countries again. or, <laughs> no, it's nothing like that. It's no justification for anything. It's just, you know, these are hard, hard discussions, decisions. People die, you know, with this stuff and... Um, yeah, it's full on. Well, I think I think taking it the other way, mate, is um, you know, I, I, I suspect there's a, a lot of people that don't realise just how brutal it is out there. Like the you mentioned the like in the world of the cyber stuff going on, it is literally constant war, um, and for some reason. There is far different rules of engagement and, well, there is no rules of engagement essentially um, and far different like, you know, rules around countries attacking other countries uh, in, in some ways um, because you can just kind of say it wasn't us uh, is, is effectively what happens. And it, it's just so interesting because if you don't have, if you don't have a robust um and uh, you know a robust systems in place you don't have you know experts you don't have the the kind of the skill set and capability you know capability is like a very military orientated word and they use it to describe the ability to do certain things you know on the on the military uh in, in landscape if you don't have the capability to do that then uh you will certainly um be undermined and so I think the, the worst thing to do is kind of dig the head in the sand about that or think that that doesn't go on. Um, it certainly does. It's just that there is thankfully um, increasing systems in place and treaties in place that help shift these things away from being violent in nature and just be at debate level. But, yeah, you know, you, you start seeing things also flow into like into the financial sphere as well. And, you know, the fin financial sphere has a lot to play. And this is where you get into trade wars and currency yeah. wars and all kinds of things. And 
all that stuff is seeking to undermine the other country. And so, in a way, it's an act of aggression. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think he was pretty pragmatic in the book of trying to balance the, you know, his principles of human rights and helping people versus the pragmatism of international relations. Um, something that was just something I think why he was so relatable as well is that he was in touch with the culture of the younger generation. Like he wasn't like, look at this, this, I mean, Joe Biden's feels like he, he's relatable, but he's, he's old, right? Like, whereas Obama and he's not on the golf course, he's shooting hoops to wind down. And he, he's, he understands the, he kind of feels like, you know, you, you could know him. I feel like Obama could teach you a little bit of lingo. Whereas I feel like that, um, Biden has had to be taught the lingo to use, you know? Yeah. And just the way he, yeah, that's true. I don't know, just the way you feel like you could sit down and have a conversation with him and it's not like talking to your, your dad. <laughs> your great-grandfather. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree, Matt. Um, so his habits. Yeah, well, that's, I was trying He's to think of a... man of many habits. He is a man of many habits. And I, we mentioned earlier about the, you know, his time in Indonesia in, in that documentary and, you know, one of the scenes that, or a couple of the scenes is just him like reading. And he was just apparently just a voracious reader, you know, just endless all the time just reading books. And to the point that in year, you know, when he was in year 10, he would be, he was reading like Crime and Pun- Punishment by Dostoevsky. Like that's some pretty, pretty that's deep, heavy. deep shit, mate. Uh, Absolutely. And so I imagine this has been a, a big, you know, forming part for his ability to understand the world, his ability to interact with people. And, um, and then also tied in with that is his writing, uh, which is probably just as prolific as, as what he's reading is. Uh, from what I took away, he's, he basically journals every single day, uh, still likes to use, a, you know, the handwritten journal. And when he was in office... He would make a set habit and a set time throughout each day to basically take in a bunch of letters from, you know, from the people of the United States and and read them and get some direct insight. Which I think was a, you know, the the, the canvas is blank when you walk into the into the presidency in, in in you know in a lot of respects, and so you can kind of choose to do what you wish and how you how you wish to to do it. So, you know, this was one of the things that he just had set into his diary each day. Yeah, I liked that because it meant he didn't get stuck in an ivory tower as much. Mm. Um, I thought that was quite a good idea. Um, yeah, it's super interesting, you know, his kind of habitual nature. Uh, but there's there's no there's no one we've talked about who doesn't love to read, is there? Maybe, maybe like, we're biased, biased towards those books, mate. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, but maybe, maybe someone that's had a book written about them or writes a book in the first place is. Uh, <laughs> I think there's true. a bias in that. There's a systematic bias, mate, in, in our show. People who love to learn end up writing books. Maybe I don't know, but uh, 
it's certainly a theme that comes through. So what? I, what? I, yeah, and and I think I think the writing, mate, uh, goes on to help him uh, with his decision making that you mentioned earlier. So do you want to tell us a little bit about his his approach to decision making? This is probably my biggest takeaway from the book is that there was it was really just one little paragraph that kind of among everything else, but it it really stuck out to me. Um, and he was kind of talking about how he approached the tough decisions of his presidency and he came up with uh, uh, this kind of system. He said that rather than let myself get paralysed in the quest for a perfect solution or succumb to the temptation to just go with my gut every time, I created a sound decision-making process, one where I first really listened to the experts, then I followed the facts considered my goals and then weighed all of that against my principles. Then no matter how things turned out, I would at least know I'd done my best with the information that was in front of me. Um, And that to me that was like a really interesting kind of framework that you could kind of, because it seemed to me the job is basically making decisions as far as I could tell from reading this book is you get plonked in the chair, you've got a little bit of um, leeway around how you receive information, what your schedule's like, but really you've got this kind of apparatus around you and people come in and go, hey, this has happened, all right, here's six experts or here's the Joint Chiefs of Staff, here's your Chief of Staff, here's your political advisor. here's this, here's that. All right, tell me about the problem. Well, you know this this rig has burst and it's spewing oil into the whatever into the. Tell ocean. you what, that was a fucking disaster, wasn't it? Oh my god! And then you've got like your economic advisor, your environmental advisor, your political advisor, and they're telling you all the angles. And then they say, "Mr. President, what do you want to do?" And then he kind and of says, like, "Oh, I don't know." Ah, shit! <laughs> and then he say. He would go through this process, and I think it's really, um, it's really quite a good one because it kind of, at the end, it goes from the problem all the way up to what you're about. You start at the problem and the cause-effect relationships. You listen to the people who know what they're talking about. Then you bring that back to your intermediate goals, which are, okay, beyond probably more tactical and then you bring it back to these value judgments around your principles and I've taken that and tried to adapt it to my own life as well uh, when I'm dealing with issues I, f- yeah. I feel like mate um, well when when you read a few strategy like a few strategy books and I'm, I'm really thinking here good strategy bad strategy and it's a really really popular strategy book it really talks about that connecting of what, you, what you've said there is you've got this bunch of information in front of you, which is the experts. And, you know, let's, you know, when it's experts, you've got good information or better information than you can get anywhere else, you know, you'd hope. And so connecting it back to the goals is a step that's very rarely taken, you know, even in the business context. You know, usually it's here's a bunch of information now, let's just go this way type thing yeah, is, is usually the kind of business operational sense whereas taking it always checking it back to those goals is such a powerful thing 
But what's so fascinating is how he takes it, that extra abstraction back to like, it's almost like you're kind of trying to find the, the point from which you're shooting and, you know, where, where the kernel really rests and then drawing a line all the way through it. So, you know, all the way back to the kernel of what your values are and, and how you kind of exist within the world. And then you take it to the next step to kind of point that towards the, the, uh, the goals that, that you're doing in this current context. And then you take it out on another level to the information that's there. And then all of a sudden um, you're making a decision on that. So I just, those two, two major steps, I think are really, really important um, mm. without even knowing what his principles are. Cause it'd be great to know what those principles were too, but I, I don't think it necessarily matters. The point is the steps t- to be yeah. taken. Yeah, I agree. Uh, another interesting little quote was sometimes your most important work involved the stuff that nobody noticed. Um, isn't that true of everything? <laughs> to be honest, mate, um, it's probably it's probably the most true thing because uh, you only really hear about the winners. Uh, you never hear about second place and you, you certainly ne- never hear about the losers. <laughs> Or you never hear about the thing that never happened that you prevented or, you know. Yeah. Uh, That's it. That, you've hit the nail on the head there, yeah. But the pressure of the presidency was something that seemed to ring through for me that he took a little while to kind of really get a hold of that early days. But then he got into a bit of a rhythm. But with the, with the mate, just on, on that, like, the thing you never hear about. So there's a lot of criticism. Just let's just take one of the calamities of of his term or the first term, uh, the GFC, and you know making the decision on the what do they call it? The t- starts with T. You talking about the bailout or yeah, the bailout. The yeah, the, the starts. I can't remember the name. Anyway, the big the big bailout. They spent a bunch of money and and basically tried to stimulate the system again and get that moving. Um, and so, you know, there's obviously a lot of criticism and and you know everyone everyone's very quick to point the fingers, particularly when not in the arena. But then it's like, well, what's the situation that plays out having not made that decision and maybe gone a more conservative approach? Uh, which was an alternative that was being, you know, thrown around to not to not spend that much money into the and stimulate the system and and how would that path have led out? You don't know, and you just yeah. simply cannot know, and that's the problem with these these kind of complex situations, is you can you can um, swear to opine until the cows come home, and you know it's just opinion. At the end of the day, as far as I, I'm concerned, because it's just the complexity of these decisions is just yeah, I, I don't know how you how you can possibly grasp alternate realities in these situations. Well, part of your job is to take responsibility for things you don't control. Uh, the economy is the most classic example in politics. Politicians <laughs> shape the economy a little bit and through regulation and things they could shape it quite a lot but over the medium term. And in terms of their term, they have very little effect on the economy, I believe, yet it's probably the one thing that they're judged on most 
that moves the needle most for voters. Um, and that's just a classic example of like part of the job is just to like be blamed or praised for something that you can't control and you just accept that. Yeah, well, mate, you know, the GFC is another classic example. It's like something that had been building up for t- uh, 10 years, you know, something like that. And then it's kind of the the shift in, uh, you know, who's holding the office and then um, – I, I, there was no doubt quite a lot of blame that got rested on that administration simply because they've taken the keys. But the fact is they've had zero control over, over that kind of coming in and landing on their desk. Um, just as, you know, I imagine, I can't think of any specific example, but say in the Trump presidency, he would have been dealing with a lot of envelope effects from the actual o- Obama's administration, you know, even, even up until now. These are at the policy level. These decisions take years, years and years and years to kind of trickle through into the system. So the thing he learned early on was that if the problems got up to his level, it's a tricky problem, you know. Um, And he said, what I was quickly discovering about the presidency was that no problem that landed on my desk, foreign or domestic, had a clean 100% solution. If it had, someone else down the chain of command would have already solved it. Instead, I was constantly dealing with probabilities, which is mm. where that kind of process probably comes in. But that's hard, you know. So from what I can tell, the job is mainly about making those decisions but then at the same time carrying the weight of them. For everyone else, and sort of keeping people upbeat and and sh- putting on a good face, and kind of holding holding the space for people to feel all right about stuff, um, and taking it on your shoulders, which I guess is leadership, isn't it? But it particularly felt even more important um, for him. Yeah, I think this is maybe where. You know, where there might be some of that, you know, legitimacy to that comment about people not, you know, someone not being ready for this particular office. And in that sense, you know, I would see, I would see the developing of a system for decision making, you know, in, in this particular case, um, and Obama's system for making decisions as being a beast that he needs to build and needs to, um, refine and the only way that you can build and refine that beast is having that beast of a system be exposed to many different and increasingly complex events so that you can kind of build in for that complexity and how you handle it and so maybe that's the kind of it's, it's almost like it's not that the person isn't ready but they're kind of the systems that they've got behind them aren't ready to handle mm. the kind of decision making that needs to be handled at this level because as you say, you can't you can't just make. Well, I think maybe we could possibly ignore the last four years, but <laughs> you can't just make decisions from like from your gut feel on the you know on what's going on and and just run with it um, because it feels feels like that's the thing you should do. Um, yeah, it seems it seems that to do a good job, it needs to come from a, a place of you know a deeper 
system that you've been building across many years and that has been exposed to many different events. Yeah. And you mentioned his cool demeanour. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems I just love be- that he play that he plays hoops. You know, it's just like goes out, plays basketball with his like security detail, you know, for a couple of games, you know, just to just to cool off steam and throw a bit of banter around. That must have been oh. good for your energy. I think that um yeah, I think we've mentioned this before, but like and Trump took the piss, let's be honest, but I'm sure they bake in that the media gets all up about the president going and playing golf or whatever. Oh, he's slacking on the job or Scott Morrison having a holiday, whatever you think about him, you know. But the truth is that they bake these things into their schedules so that for resilience um, it keeps them good. They have to do it, otherwise they go mad, you know. Um, It's sort of part of the deal. Uh, well, this and it's is the, probably this a good the, lesson for someone like me. <laughs> well, this is this is the thing, mate. Is um, people criticise these leaders taking a holiday? They're like, you know, what the fuck are you taking a holiday for? You shouldn't be taking a holiday. Well, I don't want someone governing my wherever I'm living who hasn't taken a holiday because I know how I perform if I haven't taken a holiday in a long time. It's like if you're working for four years straight with no holiday you are going to be a disaster and you aren't going to be able to perform and that's yeah. you know i see that as a huge problem so they sh- I, I think they should be able to take holidays and if they can't take holidays and the system that they've got that can't handle it and the, the whole bloody country or whatever falls apart then there's a bigger problem <laughs> yeah he he effectively puts his calm nature down to training himself to take the long view and, and not and don't get too focused on the daily ups and downs and stay focused on your goals and your longer-term goals and how you're going towards them, which would be pretty hard considering all the noise that would come at you. And, geez, you've got to have, you've got to be pretty tough to be the president. Um, you know, people just, the ability to take criticism from the no one's happy, let alone some people, you know. Whatever you do, you're disappointing some group of people and, you know, the rejections, the failures. I guess at the, at the end of the day you kind of get used to that, right? Mm. I, think, I think that's one of the, um, the measures of success in itself, mate. Uh, you know, it's the, if you don't have haters, then you haven't made it and... You know that's probably no more true in the in the the public life that is politics. It's the ultimate kind of arena for having haters, but oh, at the yeah. same time, you know. And sadly, we're probably moving increasingly, or it seems to be uh, that 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 has over the last few years has moved more towards more of that. Is that with the increased intensity of haters for example there is also an increased intensity of lovers um because there is people along the kind of various political spectrums or you know everywhere along that spectrum in the world um Mm. you know there's every shape and color so the the you know and so with that um i think you just need to kind of 
push through those those moments of hate, but it's incredibly challenging because no, you don't. Well, I certainly uh, don't face anything like that, um, and you can't no. imagine. Like you get you get put down by someone, or you you know you copper you copper a bad comment from from somewhere that's. You imagine copying that on the front page of a new, every single newspaper across an entire country, you know, for, forever. It's just crazy. Yeah. You'd have to ignore it. <laughs> yeah, you would. So what's what's your takeaway? What are you going to – I think this question, what will you change having read this book's relevant for this episode because there's a lot of information in there. What's one thing, one or two things that you'll take away and, and use from reading this? honestly the the this you can't beat that kind of another uh reinforcement of the decision making you know process and framework that he follows because uh, as i mentioned uh, that's very much mentioned in a in a book called good strategy bad strategy uh which is and it's this tie back it's this like step back step back and i love that Double step back on on decisions, so that yeah, for me, cool. mate, is 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 incredible. Um, to to actually do that, take yourself out of the moment, and just check check yourself. It's almost like have a bit of that cool, calm nature to check yourself. Um, and maybe that's why he's he's probably good at what he does is that he does have that cool, calm nature. Therefore, he is able to take those two steps back that is is required for his his systemized process there. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Really and, and, and the other one, mate, is um, continue to listen to Lose Yourself by Eminem because that was one of the routines we didn't we didn't pick up on uh, from Obama was that before he had has any big event, he has a very set routine and part of that routine after some exercise and, and a set dinner that he has each time is – to put on some rap, uh, usually lose yourself by Eminem or some Jay Z. So pump up well, music. It works. It does. I'll give him that. What about you? Uh, I reckon I've got three main ones. The first one is your the decision making framework that we discussed. So I won't back over that, but that's excellent. The second is to sort of like, you know, take your seat. I'd call it like so his quote was, if I wanted to be a president, I needed to act like one. And for him, he had this kind of, he was the president, you know. So once he sort of accepted and sat back and, and took the chair and, and, and took his position and acted in that way, it just let everything else be. So if you're in a leadership position, you need to be able to, accept that and own it um i think that's that's really good uh, and I'll, I'll be thinking about that and continuing to try and do that and the last one is sort of what i talked about earlier about the almost spiritual position of being a president is that you're barack obama and then the next day you're the president and you're mr president and you're sir and that that that, that culture has created a whole reverence around that position that means whoever goes into it, the stuff, the way that people act around them gives it the power and the meaning that it does. So 
I think that if you're building anything and you're creating teams and that sort of stuff, you know, you need to define the positions and the rituals around the positions that mean that give them the importance that you want. Um, and I think that that's something that I'll be thinking about going forward. Um, not in the way to create a king, but <laughs> it's more about what are the what is the what gives this the positions in your company, tennis team, footy team, whatever, um, meaning. So that when the next person steps into it, they take that mantle. Interesting. And so, mate, um, is there any any insights you can glean for us there? Anything that you've kind of stormed out yet? Nothing specific. Or are, just, you, or are you saving this for your next presidential campaign? <laughs> uh, politics isn't for me. So... I really just got to the point of understanding that concept. So I think reading that book made me understand the creation. You know, someone just, the United States didn't exist 500 years ago. So, you know, someone's made all this stuff up. So. Probably a bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. And the, the older it is, as we know, the more, uh, you know, Kind of reverence and tested it is. Yeah. So, but someone created the founding fathers created it. So, I just sort of came across that idea. Well, I felt that theme throughout the book, and I thought that was quite interesting. And I haven't come into anything concrete about what to implement yet, but I feel like that idea of whatever it is, it should reflect what your whatever, I, I use the word organisation here loosely, it doesn't have to be a company. I think it just probably needs to reflect the culture of the place in the first place. So if you have a really serious culture, if it probably should be something quite serious if you have something that's a bit more of a jokey sort of thing, then whatever the rituals you put around the positions should probably be something like that. Um and I think that that's probably my gut feel early on, but I haven't got anything more for you yet. Need to do some more thinking on it. Mm, I like it. There's some. There's a. There's a nice bit of insight in that one, mate. I um. I want to hear. I want to hear how that develops. Keep you posted. Got a closing quote for it. Yeah. So, <clears throat> this is this is a one that comes out of uh, dealing with the Middle East crisis. Um, that he went through and it was a basically a battle of the egos between him and the um, or probably probably not so much uh, his ego or at least that's the way he portrays it and the uh, Israeli Prime Minister name escapes me Lockie Netanyahu okay all right so forgive the pronunciation uh, no mate I like that you just threw it straight back over so well done um, said with confidence that's the yeah, key confidence that's all, that's, that's all that matters if there's something we've learned from the last four years that's all that matters so looking back I sometimes ponder the age old question of how much difference the particular characteristics of an individual leaders make in the sweep of history 
whether those of us that rise to power are mere conduits for the deep, relentless currents of the times, or whether we're at least partly the authors of what's to come. Yeah, that's, that's a great quote. It just sums up this kind of thing he's battling with, I think. Mm, coming from the previous most powerful person in the world. <laughs> well, that was a pleasure, mate. Awesome. Cheers. Cheers.